Hi, my name is Joe Jackson. I'm an interviewer, author, journalist, and broadcaster. And what you're about to hear is one of the 1,400 interviews I did for nearly all major media outlets in Ireland. How do I know there are 1,400 interviews exactly? Because I recently digitized all the damn tapes myself. But do remember that many of the interviews were done for the print media and recorded on cassette tapes. So some are, let's say, sonically challenged. But I happen to believe that sonic considerations should give way to historical significance at times. And I'm glad to say that at least some powers that be in RTE Radio 1 agreed with me on this and broadcast between the years 2015 and 2018 many of my interviews in a series called The Joe Jackson Tapes Revisited. What follows is a program that was made for that series but never broadcast. However, it has been edited for this podcast from a one-hour show down to two podcasts roughly half that length because... Roughly a half hour seems to be the preferred length for podcasts. By the way, if you want to read the interviews as published, plus a fragment of memoir I wrote about my meetings with Gabriel Byrne and the backstory to the interviews, check out the ebook Gabriel Byrne, The Joe Jackson Interviews Plus, which is available from Amazon, Apple iBooks, Barnes & Noble, Eason's, and so on. Or check out my website, joejacksoninterviewer.com. Here's the show. Picture this scene. Gabriel Byrne and I are standing outside a mansion in Bel Air, Hollywood in 1988 after the first of the two interviews in tonight's show ended. We're having our photo taken. I joke, Gabriel, would you look at us? You a former plumber and me a former sheet metal worker. Who the hell let us in here? Snap, pick taken. Then snap again in another sense as Gabriel, who had told me during the interview that he felt he got into acting by default, now said, but that is how I often feel. I can be standing at a party here in L.A., and I'm expecting someone to walk over and show me the tradesman's exit. I told that story in a Sunday Independent profile of Byrne and repeated it again in my ebook, Gabriel Byrne, The Joe Jackson Interviews Plus, simply because this admittance of a core insecurity was so representative of the candidness with which Byrne spoke to me in 1988, and that made him describe our chat as the first totally honest interview he ever gave. In fact, listening to those tapes again nearly 30 years later, I was reminded of his recent TV series, In Treatment. Although I sound more like the shrink he played, and he sounds like my patient. That reminds me, I must send him the bill. It also reminds me that only weeks before this interview, one of my earliest, took place, the editor of an Irish magazine had actually said I brought psychology to the interviews in his magazine. Or maybe he said codology. Either way, Byrne's phrase, totally honest, has to be seen as relative. Yes, this was the first time he spoke about having set out to become a priest and about his life in a seminary. Also, his reference to dealing with a drink problem one day at a time clearly indicates alcoholism, and the mention of what he called homosexual horseplay in the seminary hints at sexual abuse. But it would be a decade before Gabriel went public on both subjects. Incidentally, at the time of this interview, Byrne's latest movie was The Courier. He was 37. He'd gotten his start in Dublin's Project Theatre during the late 70s and later, as a result of the TV show Bracken, was described as Ireland's first bona fide male sex symbol. Partly as a bit of fun, I kicked off by asking Gabriel Byrne what in his mind were the core differences between being a plumber and a movie star. And yes, I did say, don't tell me the money. And he joked, yeah, plumbers get paid more. Then came this reply. I always hated... Um, the routine of a nine-to-five. Um, <clears throat> I always hated the idea of knowing exactly what I was going to be doing in, in ten years' time. Um, 
being in movies gives you the, the chance to travel, to live different places, to meet different people. I know that sounds like a model and a, you know, Mr. America pageant, but uh, that has been really important to me. And I think that even if I wasn't working in movies, I would still be doing that yeah. in some form or another, you know. I've, I've always been fascinated by explorers. And um, <clears throat> I, I, I just adore reading about explorers. And um, as a plumber, I know that I would have been consigned to, to working for J&M Baird I would have been I would have been working for them for the rest of my life. Why did you choose it? I chose it because I failed my intercept and I couldn't yeah. get any other job, you know. And uh, was your family? Was your family? Involved? No, my father was a labourer in Guinness. Yeah. And he happened to know a guy who knew a guy who said he'd take me on, even though I had no intercept. And they were they couldn't take me as an apprentice plumber. I mean, I wasn't even an apprentice plumber. I, was, hadn't the I hadn't got the intercept. I failed the intercept. No, and I failed the primary as well. So I had a kind of a double stigma yeah. attached to me. And plumbing was the only one. I used, there was a, I remember there was a little pamphlet that the VEC used to send there. And at the top it would list like um, um, electrician, laboratory technician, all those stuff. And you always needed <laughs> mathematics and science and oh, yeah. Irish and all this shit. And I, I, I had to go right to the bottom to see what you could get. And um, there would be stuff like... Um, Woodcutter's assistant or something or forestry or something, and eventually I ended up with uh, with being plumber's mate for three pounds. I worked in I worked in Baird's and I put in the central heating. And I dread to think of it. I I still pass these buildings in Dublin and I say, my work's there. Oh, my work is there. <laughs> you know, if I do nothing else, <laughs> like the sculptor has in the gallery where one of his exhibitions is, I used to say, my work is in there, <laughs> and uh, it was absolutely useless at it. I used to, I could never understand the difference between an S band and a straight band. I connected. You've gone through tech. You've gone through tech, had you? No, <clears throat> no. I had been. I had left Ireland when I was twelve. Um, <clears throat> I suppose it must have been the instinct for for travel again, and also the romantic thing in me as well. I remember when we used to get this magazine at home called The Divine Ward, which was published by yeah. the Societas Verbi Divini in Roscommon. I used to write at the house every week, uh, every month. And one month I opened it and there was an article in it <clears throat> on a seminary in England where they took guys of 12 years of age to train them to be priests. And there were great photographs in this, you know, of guys playing billiards and table tennis and football and uh, going for walks and then pictures of guys later on out in Africa on horses, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, out in the missions. And I remember, romantic. <clears throat> my mother was, I remember my mother was washing uh, the dishes in the sink and I came in, I'd been reading this thing out in the garden and I came in and I gave it to her and I said, I'd love to be one of those. So I forgot all about it. And one, one summer's evening, I remember we were playing football on the road and I saw this priest walking up the road. It was just getting dark. And he was looking for a house. And I, I, you know, I couldn't, somebody said, he's looking, he's going into your house. So I went into my house and in the sitting room, this priest was sitting and I'll never forget, he was on the chair and my mother had given him a cup of tea and some Marietta biscuits. And he was breaking the Marietta biscuits, like the way they break the house. And it was, I, I'll never forget the way he did that. And I- All happens to her. All happens to her. And I found myself with seven other Irish kids 12 years of age, on the mailboat, watching Dunleary disappear, all dressed in black with a black cap. Which uh, your parents approved? Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. They, they said, if that's what you want to do, go ahead and do it. So I spent four and a half years there. 
And I, I discovered one day that <clears throat> a group, a traveling group of players came to do a play at the seminary. And there was uproar because uh, one of the girls took off her dress in the play and she had a slip. And uh, when they were, when, the, when this troop of players were leaving, we were all hanging out the windows and I said, God, this is, this is so exciting. I mean, I discovered girls, women, I suppose, and, and the, and the theatre there. And um, I was called into the teacher's office when I was caught smoking in the graveyard with this other guy from Bally Fern called Ronnie, Ronnie Bourne. And we were smoking park drive in the graveyard. And we were sitting in the, in the, in the classroom and a guy called Christopher Holden, I'll never forget his name, put up his hand. The priest used to walk up and down between the aisles, you know, with the soutan, with the brush against you. So put up his hand, he said, Father, the Bournes have been smoking in the graveyard. So we were brought to the guy's office and he said, I've been looking over your conduct and etc. And I don't think you've got a vocation. And uh, they caught me sending a letter, which I didn't submit to them for censorship. And uh, that was it, I left. And uh, I left in the depths of winter, I remember, doing press-ups on crew, on the platform of crew station, myself and this other guy, two of us left together. And... Um, Did that leave any kind of legacy? Mm. What kind of well, I still... I still am a sucker for playing chant. And uh, I'm still very interested in... Uh, <clears throat> in the idea of... Um, the priesthood, although I would never in a million years embrace it yeah. now, but yeah. um, it was something that was important to me for a long time. It's something that I've never really thought about before, but um, I, I did it all there, you know. I mean, I was up at six o'clock every morning, mass, um, <clears throat> studies, prayer, all that stuff. And um, consequently, um, when I came out, I worked as a plumber's mate, but I still had the idea of going back again to become to become a lay brother, you know. But that that, that kind of that that experience of like discovering the young girl and that woman in the slip and that <clears throat> affect your attitude to sexuality wasn't the, the usual kind of shadow we hear of. Well, when you're when you discover sexuality and and you're deprived of it. It, just it, just in the shape of, of, of girls walking by, I mean, you have to live a lot of the time in your imagination. And uh, most of us did. Yeah. And um, they, they used to say that, um, you know, when the lights would go out, the beds would become tense immediately, you know. Um, that was the way we lived. And there was, there was homosexuality there, though I didn't recognise it as homosexuality at the time. And I don't think that most of the guys who even... Were doing it. Um, were doing, doing it. Really knew what they were doing, yeah. because the whole idea of taking like young boys and putting them into a, a situation where women and sin are like one and the same thing, um, <clears throat> and yet the instinct to to find out about that is so strong. You're going to have problems at the age of awakening. Sexually. At the age of awakening, and um, you didn't. If you didn't recognize it as such, did you partake? In homosexuality? No, I didn't. Games, games. <clears throat> well, you know, the kids play games. You know, not 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 kind of uh, fully consummated homosexuality, but young boys drawn together like that being body Oh yeah, there was there was horseplay. I would yeah. describe it as horseplay, yeah. and uh, we knew that there were certain guys in the in in the school who who you know 
we're more serious about it than others. Yeah. And we used to get veiled kind of lectures on uh, not going together to, uh, you know, lonely places uh, with another yeah. boy and stuff like that. We, we didn't understand why. It was just a rule that you didn't do. But of course, you broke it all the time. Um, Did it leave you nervous of, or distanced from uh, your own kind of attraction to women or being attracted to women or finding them? Yeah. Wasn't that kind of... Yeah, I must say that because the emphasis in the in in the teaching that we had, there was a particular veneration of the um, of the Blessed Virgin and purity and so forth, and it took me a long time to uh, to uh, to get used to the idea that women should not be on pedestals, you know, yeah. and that women were inaccessible and unapproachable, and that women were not interested in sex. It took me a long time to get over that. And uh, it was one of the joyous discoveries of my life to find that women were as interested in sex as, as, um, as men were. As you were. As, as I was. So and six, 16 and a half? I was 16 and a half, but I didn't, actually, uh, <clears throat> I didn't actually go out with a girl really seriously until I was uh, 20. I think the first girl I went out with, I was 19. And um, the relationship I had after that was uh, with a woman who was much older than me. And um, I, you know, I was very much <clears throat> in awe and afraid of women. I don't know whether that's a condition that's just peculiar to Irish people, but I tended to see it as a direct result of uh, the time that I spent in the centre. Yeah. And uh, I was led to believe that um, women were temples of the Holy Ghost and they even entertained thoughts about them in any way. It's apart from that was, was a violation of that. And, and so, um, <clears throat> yeah, it uh, fucked up my sexuality for quite a long time. Yeah, um, and at 19, you came to terms with that? Is that what you mean? At 19, yeah, I came to terms with that, and um, I, I, I went out with a girl, and um, it, was, it was the first time, I mean, since uh, seven years. And I suppose I first became aware of it when I was about 12, and at 19, I started to go out with a girl. And it was within a loving situation. <clears throat> Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was really exciting. It was, yeah. it was in the Gaeltacht. I was at university at the time, and um, I got a scholarship to the Gaeltacht, and uh, I met this girl who's now, uh, who's now a teacher, and uh, we had a, a great two weeks. I love, I love when you're <clears throat> I love when you're passionate. Set against the background of the rugged Kerry Gaeltacht. <laughs> Gabriel would soon move to London after getting his theatre and TV break in Ireland, but he told me that in the beginning his self-confidence was less than zero. The most difficult thing I found was to follow what my own instincts were. And deep down my own instincts were, I could never imagine that I'd even be um, on a stage in, 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 in a small theatre in Dublin, never mind sitting here in, 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 in Beverly Hills. Um, so what gave you really the kick in the arse of the confidence? In the... I, I didn't have any confidence. That's what amazes me. I did not have any confidence or belief in myself. I had a very, very low sense of, of self-esteem. Very low. And uh, I never believed um, any of the stuff that, that happened to me. It's only now that I'm beginning to come to terms with it. So I never you believed... Not controlling it? Was this just a lucky time of events that took you around? I don't know. I mean, maybe it's just that um, there are certain things that happen to you and they're meant to happen to you. I don't know. I've never been... So you didn't make the decision one morning to hell with this? I do have an opportunity to be on stage. I do have an opportunity to do something else. No, I did it. I did it simply because somebody said to me, 
would you like to partake in this play? But when did you get that confidence? Then? You do have the confidence now, in a sense. I have a confidence now, but it's it's um, it's a hard won confidence, and it's very um, it's very delicate. It, in, in all areas of being, um, I think I'm much more confident about myself now, as a person than I've than I've ever been. Um, and as an actor, and as a um, it took me a long time to come to terms with confidence in myself as an actor, especially. Um, I, did you feel you'd entered by default or something? Yeah, like I felt that I'd entered by default. I felt that um, that I didn't really have anything particular um, to offer. I never felt that I was particularly gifted in any way. So therefore, I felt, why the fuck is this happening? This is, you know, this shouldn't be happening to me. Could that be part of the legacy of Catholicism? You know, the way many of us are made to feel, I poor, humble servant, dear Lord, bad down. Don't deserve this. Yeah, I deserve nothing. A sense of entitlement. Right. A lot of Irish people have yeah. that. You're probably right in that it's not Irish thing, it's it's a Catholic thing, yeah, yeah. that you don't deserve this. And I, I, I suffered from that lack of entitlement. Even now, well, now I don't somewhere anymore because I don't take this business very seriously anymore. Um, I, I, I now feel that, you know, I have as much to contribute as anybody else and that um, and I deserve to be here and fuck it, I'm entitled to it. And what's the alternative? To back away from it and say, no, I don't want to do it. But, um, but that feeling has only come of late? That feeling has only come of late and it came after a long struggle, a really long struggle. Well, it wasn't with a particular part you played? No, never, never. That's one of the things that, 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 that surprises me, that... Um, that I thought, I used to think that, oh, if, if I was really well-known or if I was really wealthy or if I was, um, you know, known everywhere I went, well, then it would be different. But what I realise is that none of these external things <coughs> uh, make, make a difference to your inside. To your own attitude. To, to your own self. So what was the returning point? Is it just a gradual growth? It was, a grad, it was a gradual growth. As I said, when I went to London, I found it a very painful experience and I isolated there for, for a while and I didn't uh, really partake in um, anything social in London at all. And um, it was a very painful period for me, but it made me realise that if you confront pain and you go through it, you come out stronger. <clears throat> if you feel it rather than anesthetize it. Well, if you ignore it or anesthetize it, well, then you're avoiding it. It's in the avoidance of pain that you don't grow. If you face the thing and go through it, you come out stronger. And that's one thing I realize now that no matter how frightening something seems to be, it's better to face it and to go through it than to avoid it. And I've known so many people who have done that. And I can think of a lot of people in Dublin that I know who have spent their lives and are spending their lives avoiding confrontation with themselves. Would you, would you have done that along the way in terms of drinking drugs? Yeah, I, went, yeah I, I went through, I went through like, like a great many people, I went through a period of, um, you know, of, of drinking and, and drugging where I thought that that was the answer to, uh, the answer to things. Was it heavy drugs or just No, 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 I know I've never snorted cocaine, for example, I've never tried heroin or anything, you know, but, um, I have, um, I have smoked uh, marijuana and uh, I thought that that was the answer because my perception of the world was, was altered and I thought that this perception was a real one and a true one and so therefore uh, this was where it was at man you know because oh, 
Now, the thing about it is that I now realize you can get to that stage without drugs and without drink. And I did have to fight a very hard battle against, uh, against drink. Yes, are you now in control of it? Um, I, don't think that, I don't think that I would ever say that I'm in control of it. Uh, but I knew that <clears throat> if I wanted to live a happy life, a contented life, uh, drink would have to go. And um, I, had to, I had to make that decision. And the way I live now is, uh, I don't say that I'm never ever going to drink again, but I live for just uh, a day at a time. And that's the only way I can live because so, so many people I've met, and I think it's also a condition that's true of Ireland as a whole, is that we're so obsessed with the past, so terrified of the future, that the present just fucking goes by. And the only thing that matters is the present. Yeah, yeah. One leg in the future, one leg in the past, you're pissing on the present. I'm just very happy to be, and grateful to be alive uh, today. Um, <clears throat> drink is uh, in, in Ireland, and especially in the theatre and film business, is like, it's second nature. I mean, yeah. it, it's, it's all around all the time. And uh, it's accepted, and it's an accepted form of an escape. To many kids coming of age during the late 50s and early 60s in Ireland, going to the pictures was a form of release and escape. Byrne told me he was one such child. Movies were, were was the one place where you could escape, and it was one place where you could be alone, and you could also be in a crowd, and uh, you were just transported from the, the daily <clears throat> routine into something into something magical, and I've never lost that love. I still get a thrill when I walk through the doors of the cinema, and I still get a thrill when the curtains go across. So it's, it's exploration, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's, be, it's being out of yourself. Maybe I'm, I'm just not a happy person with myself, and that I need, and have always needed that kind of escape. But no, certainly nothing else has ever given me the same. Would you say that about yourself? You're not a happy person with yourself? I would say that I certainly wasn't. I think I'm. I think I'm happy now. I think I'm happy and contented now. And these major changes have come in the past two or five years. <clears throat> I would say in the last, um, in the last three years, I would say yeah. two years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I would say to be honest, up until that time, I, I did not know what what it was to be to be happy. So you want by happy, I mean contented and serene. And I think content is beginning to is beginning to come. Now. And that's why I said that in the last three years, I feel that I have become very sure of my own identity. I'm not saying that I'm perfect in it, but I, I, I do feel I'm getting to know myself a lot more. Do you feel ruthless? Yeah, I do. I do. I feel that quite a lot. I, so I really do suffer from a sense of ruthlessness. Um, I, I really do. How, how will you or how can you combat that? How can I combat that? I don't know. Sometimes I feel like I'm a kind of like a... Um, one of these nomads, you know, going yeah. from oasis to oasis. No, it's very true. I do suffer that ruthlessness. And, and yet I can adapt. I can come to Los Angeles, I can be here for three months, I can do a film here, and this becomes my home for three months. I can go back to Ireland, I can visit my parents, Dublin, of course, it, it, Ireland is always my first home, except I can't afford to live there anymore. Right. You know? and, um, would, you, would you have any hopes or dreams of marrying, having children? And that kind of yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's crossed uh, it's crossed the mind now, right? Yeah, I think that it's very important to have kids. I really do. It's not something I would have thought ten years ago, but I think it is important because it does take the spotlight off yourself and makes you care about something other than yourself. 
And people who don't marry later in life, I think, tend to be more self-obsessed than people who do. And as well as that, you know, I think it's uh, just tremendous joy to be got out of having children. And I know there's a certain amount of pain as well, but there's a tremendous joy and there's a tremendous sense of self-fulfillment about having kids. Do you see that in your future? Your current relationship? I would hope that it would happen, yeah. I would hope that it would happen. I'm, I'm, um, but that's I'm, certainly, I'm certainly thinking much more about it now than I did four or five years ago. I had heard that Gabriel Byrne, back when Pierce Brosnan was still Remington Steele and gagging for the role of James Bond, was considered for the role. But Bond, as created by Ian Fleming, was, as much fun as the movies can be, a carrier of racist, sexist, misogynist and imperialist codes. So I asked Byrne, is that why he wasn't interested in the role? I think everybody who, was, who could remain vertical for two minutes and had dark hair or even blonde hair was you know, mentioned as being one of the yeah. Bond people. And there were certain people in the Bond setup that really wanted me to play Bond. Now, do you see those codes in him? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I think James Bond is a cardboard comic character that's so out of date that it's a joke. You know what I mean? They're special effects movies. He walks through it like a man, spouting kind of like, uh, you know, anti, anti-Russian, anti-communist, anti-pro-Western, pro-imperialist crap, you know, that it assumes from the beginning that James Bond is right to be fighting these forces of evil. You know, he's less offensive to me than, um, and probably at the same time more dangerous than Rambo, who was tapping a card somewhere among right. people who feel the need to identify with this kind of thing. And in America, you know, the fear of invasion by another... Uh, Chuck Norris, uh, Rambo, James Bond. I mean, to me, they're just like, I mean, they're comics. I mean, I actually, it was kind of embarrassing to be associated with that thing. Yeah. While I was in this cultural deconstructionist mode, I couldn't resist the temptation to remind Gabriel, as Ireland's first bona fide male sex symbol, that a female sex symbol such as Marilyn Monroe often saw herself as little more than a lump of meat processed and packaged purely to feed venal fantasies, often sexual, among cinema audiences. So I asked Gabriel, did he ever feel he was packaged and processed along the same cinematic meat factory lines? <sighs> Marilyn Monroe was packaged with mystery and mystique, and it's for no accident that they are called, she was called a goddess, mm. and that uh, movie movie actors are called stars because stars are unattainable, goddesses are unattainable. Now, with the, with the chat show, with the, with, with the interview, with people's ability to make their own movies, to take their own photographs, like you don't have to do anything with a camera, you take your own photographs, that sense of mystery and excitement is gone. And so therefore, people aren't that much in awe anymore of the, like the myth of the goddess coming down from the mountain like Marilyn Monroe. That's gone. But do you ever feel yourself in process and package to feel venial fantasies, say like sexual fantasies of women? I can't you help stand on the, You know, you're standing there being filmed, you know the way they're filming, you know what it's basically all about and what she's supposed to be. No, to be absolutely honest, I have never thought of that. I have never thought of myself as supplying a fantasy to women. Now, at the same time, I know that when the movie goes out, there are certain women um, who, who like the look of me, okay? Yeah. I don't consciously feel when I'm on a set that I'm being, um, you know, used as, you know, fantasy fodder. But that's built into the thing. 
And it's one of the frightening things about it, that you are up there and it's one reality to you. And that's what's frightening because you're not in control of how people react to you. Response. That day I was a little off mic, so here I am revoicing some of my questions. I then asked Gabriel if he ever was confronted by a woman who was obsessed by his film image. Yeah, I, I, yeah. it's like anybody who... The, the screen distances you, from, distances you from people. And people see you in a way that's not real. So therefore they meet you in reality and are a bit confused because you're not like you were in that. And at the same time, you're the same person. And so therefore, how do they relate to you? And to be honest, the one thing that I, I have no control over is how other people see me. And I, I have a hard time dealing with people who say, you know, uh, you know you're really, you look really great and now you're really handsome or my mother adores you or whatever. It's nice. It's yeah. fucking nice, yeah. to be honest. It's better than a kick in the bollocks. It's better than being told that you're ugly or that, you know. Um, but you have to come to terms with it. And at the same time, it has, got, it has got to mean nothing because as soon as it begins to mean something, then you start maybe getting out here with these people and projecting things onto yourself. So is there a temptation to sexually exploit women who might come to Gabriel hung up on a screen image? You could. You could. It has happened uh, once or twice, but um, I have never... Uh, I have never exploited anybody in that way who was... Well, maybe exploitation was too harsh a word, but mm-hmm. it would be hard for a lot of men, a lot of women not to... Well, I've got I've got very blatant invitations, you know, from uh, from women, but um, I've never taken them. I've never taken them up, never. Um, and not just not just in Ireland, but I mean in other places as well. Um, people who wouldn't necessarily know who you are just because you were in a movie, they say, "Oh." But um, is that because you're you're involved in a long-term relationship, or you you didn't feel it was right, or? Yeah, I'm not really into uh, that kind of uh, relationship. I really am not because uh, you're being um, you're being courted for something that's in their minds and is not the you. I mean, mm-hmm. if um, I have had one or two uh, uh, difficult experiences where you know women have. Uh, made life a bit difficult for me, and um, by and large, I am treated well by women. I get a positive response from women, and I didn't before, or at least I felt I didn't before. So I yeah. wonder now: is it because I'm just on television? I don't think I've changed that much. Yeah. And it's a strange thing to go from being totally unknown to being well known. It's <clears throat> but you you are involved in a long term relationship. At this point, are, are you? Or is that just well, I, I have been involved in a long-term relationship, yeah. Uh, a woman who, who, who gave me tremendous support and uh, uh, gave up her career for me, really, um, to, to, to go to England with me. And um, because, of, because of my uh, involvement in that relationship, I tended not to take advantage of any opportunities that were offered to me in, uh, in the street or in pubs. That's not to say that I haven't been tempted. I've been really tempted, believe me. Here, Gabriel and I were alluding to his long-time partner, Ony O'Connor, whose name I instinctively decided not to use given his reticence on the subject. After the interview ended, he explained why. He said that they'd parted and asked me not to, quote, break the story back in Ireland. I promised I wouldn't. 
Later that night, when I met Gabriel for a drink in Molly Malone's pub in L.A., he introduced me to his new girlfriend, Ellen Barkin, whom I soon realised was as fascinated by the subject of sexual politics as Gabriel was. In fact, after he and I hit that little wall in relation to Anya O'Connor, I returned to the subject and asked if he agreed with the feminist view that the male romantic hero in film has, historically, been used to reduce women to the role of passive fantasist. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. That is because, very simply, most movies are written, directed, produced, distributed by men. And whether one agrees with that or disagrees with it, that is a reality. And I have known actresses. I would hate to be an actress. I really would. I, I, unless you were Meryl Streep or Jessica Lange, to be an actress must be another fucking thing because um, it's not that there isn't the work around, but it's the kind of work that's around. It was the kind of parts that I used to be offered. You know, I would be offered the part where I would be the guy who was saying to the hero, don't do it. Please don't do it. You know, you know, I really care about you. And the guy would take up a gun and shoot me and that would be the end of me. That was the kind of role. Women are seen as satellites around the male stars. Uh, unless you happen to be one of the 10 like leading film actresses in the world, say like um, Diane Keaton, Jessica Lange, um, Meryl Streep, you, you know, the, the very elite bunch at the top. The rest of actresses have to fight for roles that are, in many cases, one-dimensional, that are a reflection of the hero's problem. Okay, you do a movie about a guy who's killed somebody. What's the woman's role in that? The woman's role in that is to be the comforter, uh, the one he confesses to, the one who helps him. Movies that are about women uh, and the story being centred around them are much less frequent than stories about hero men. And I was looking at a movie the other night, I forget what it was, and a terrific actress was in it. And the guy was going through this big fucking problem. Will I, won't I, I've lost everything. And she was just saying, it's okay, darling, it's okay, I'm here for you, you know. And women have to start making movies of their own. Not necessarily about women, about feminism, but stories told from a woman's point of view. But that's really difficult for them to do because women can't get an even break here. A mm. woman finds it very difficult to raise money to make a film. There are very few women directors. Would you, you never see yourself in those terms as they would criticise that a romantic hero used to reduce women to the role of passive fantasists? Yeah. I, think, know, that, I think that's not just true of film. I think that that's true of... of uh, of uh, popular culture, I think it's a reflection of popular culture, and it's been in novels since God knows when. You know, women writers, uh, I mean, have been exceptional. Great women writers have been exceptional rather than the rule, and uh, great uh, heroines uh, who have carried the book as their story. I mean, even some people like Jane Austen and George Eliot, people like that. Mostly books have been written about men, but by men, about men, with women as the secondary characters, as the supporter. And that is the way it has been in society, and that is the way that's the way it is now. So, what would Gabriel Byrne say if a feminist did a thesis on his film career and said that his depiction of Byron in the movie Gothic, for example, was used in this process of disempowering women? I would, I would say that I have to, I, I have to agree. Uh, if you look at the movies that are, that are successful at the moment, like Broadcast News, Broadcast News has been hailed as one of the great movies in 1988. You look at that movie, and what that movie says in the end is that if you're a woman and you're not married, you're fucked up and you're a psycho. 
you look at fatal attraction. Fatal attraction, yeah. You know, that's about yeah. you don't cheat on your wife because that's also, I suppose, to a certain extent reflecting the paranoia about AIDS and so forth. But um, it's still the woman as villainous or as tenuous yeah. or as um, a virgin. So they put these roles on women and women have to play them. Gabriel Byrne, a never less than fascinating interviewee. And in the second podcast in this series, we'll move four years forward to the second interview we did. I thank you for listening to this edition of the Joe Jackson Interviews podcast. More can be heard on my website, joejacksoninterview.com, and the ebook, Gabriel Byrne, the Joe Jackson Interviews Plus, is, as I said, available wherever you buy ebooks. Thank you.